right. Jack, while you pour that delicious goodness, I'd like to do a little breach of the week. And I would like to chat about the $625 million that was stolen from the Ronin network, the Axia Infinity hack. Yikes. Did you read about that one? Yeah, you know, you start losing, you know, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, and pretty soon that is up to real money. <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable. To me. It's unbelievable how much money continues to be lost, and uh, people are still super horny about it. Like they keep pouring cash in, just gets kind of topped off. Gas tanks empty, someone will top it off. It feels to me like it gets taken less seriously because the people who are dealing with it are sort of treated as though they're in a separate economy from the rest of us. And it's hard for, I think, in a lot of ways, for the law enforcement community to understand it well enough to, to take it seriously. Yeah. So we were talking about this one, $625 million exploited out of Axie Infinity. It's part of the Ronin network. Think about this done to the U.S. banking system as we know it today. Like, What happened if someone just lifted $625 million out of a national bank Citibank, TD Bank, U.S. Bank, whatever. Who would freak the F out? Yeah, you start to lose faith in the financial system itself. I remember years ago, people talking about a great way to destabilize a nation was to get people to stop trusting the integrity and the security of this financial system. So, I mean, this is it. All right. So, you want to talk about Axie Infinity, the Ronin Network? Yeah. All right. So... For those not familiar with it, this was the largest DeFi exploit ever. $625 million stolen from the Ronin network. And for those who aren't familiar with DeFi, it's basically distributed finance. It's a new type of finance that uh, kind of exists tangentially and aside from you know the traditional banking system that, that we all know. So the hack basically sent the prices of both the Ronin blockchain token, RON, and the Axie Infinity's main token, AXS, tumbling. And basically what happened was the attack was discovered on March 29th. Um, it was about a week after it happened when a user was unable to withdraw 5,000 Ethereum from the Ronin network. And then an Axie developer, uh, Sky Mavis, investigated and found out that 173,600 Ethereum and... $2.5 million of USDC have been drained from the Ronin network on March 23rd in two transactions. The hack follows a similar exploit in February where $320 million was stolen from the wormhole bridge. Man. Yeah. What's interesting about this topic specifically is we did a breach of the week on Harvest Finance. I don't know. This must have been two, two years ago. It was, it was a while ago. I feel like it was 2020 we did it. And um, at the time, it was like, wasn't a lot of details. No one totally understood it. I certainly didn't understand it because there's nothing to read on it. But now kind of fast forward to today and like learning more about this and how these things actually happen is there's a lot of common hacks that just keep getting perpetuated, right? And whatever the, the network is and whatever the chain is, and they're prone to the same type of attacks. And what's interesting is reading about this hack, reading about you know, the harvest finance hack now two years later and things like the wormhole bridges in the most general sense, they're all being exploited by the same type of attacks that all stem from application exploits, program exploits that have to do with programmer logic, 
right? And all of these networks, they go through a, like a security assessment before they go live. And there's a handful of companies that do these security certification of these kind of networks, if you will, before they go live. And they, you know, they kind of bless them like the Godfather, like, oh, yes, you can go forward and you can transact your Bitcoin and everything's great. But come to find out, it doesn't mean anything because the statistics show that the network, whether they're audited and certified or not, their likelihood of hack is the exact same and the percentage of hack is the exact same. Mm. So interesting fact about all this. You know, there's, there's a follow-on as well. I remember in reading about the attack itself, the one that we're talking about that went on with Axie, there was actually um, a person online on Twitter that was talking about shorting the stock, that the community itself was sort of so absent, in the community that's trading in it, it was so absent in sort of like the what's going on frame of mind, that even after it was publicly known that they had lost all this money, the stock continued to rise. And so he was shorting it or she was shorting it, right? And just think about the knock-on effects of this lack of awareness of the security, both the underpinnings of it, but actually the security activity that surrounds a currency. To your earlier point, Justin, right? If someone in the U.S. market suddenly stole, you know, some number of billions of dollars out of the banking system and it just vanished, you can imagine that people would be writing about it and knowing about it and, you know, hugging tightly their ATM cards you know, for some period of time, because it would be obvious to them because people pay attention. And I think that there's this combination of a lack of focus on making sure that we truly understand the way in which we audit, you know, soft A audit, what's going on inside this realm, but also the way that folks aren't necessarily taking seriously the reporting on it because they're still viewing it as sort of like, you know, candy corn sort of currency, when it's actually real money for people. I speculate that because of its association with gaming, and this idea that, um, you know, it's like, uh, it's like the old Mario Brothers. Like you start to run out of lives, you just try to find a one-up somewhere and you start to replenish your lives a little bit. And, you know, you start the game over and your, your bank's replenished. Your lives are restored. But I think where we exist today, the economy that exists is like, you're right. Like there's dollars being put into this, right? And, you know, these game manufacturers have done a fantastic job about creating their own economy that is fueled by traditional dollars, Right. And it's, you can either take dollars or, you know, I don't know, just go back to beaver pelts. <laughs> yeah, right on, right on. It's interesting, right? Because one of the currencies that was stolen was the USDC. It is pegged to the dollar. So that's like real money so long as the firm continues to honor that relationship, which it appears continues to happen. I think it's interesting. If I can, because it's my nature, take you down memory lane just for a moment. And for the audience's benefit, I'm not sure how many folks will remember uh, when Mount Gox went belly up, right? So Mount Gox was, uh, <laughs> was basically one of the earlier, one of the earlier trading, right? Uh, places to take Bitcoin back and forth. And for those of you who, who didn't know, they lost, lost, L-O-S-T, 850,000 Bitcoin in 2014. And even at today, as we record this podcast pricing, where it's dropped quite a bit recently, that's still like $25 billion in value that suddenly went, oh, see you later. Sorry, I'm sorry about that. And about a little over a third of it, a little under a third of it was actually found in an old wallet. Oh, hey, sorry about that. Uh, we found some more of that. We found $8 billion in an old wallet, right? You're not rolling individuals in the gutter for that, but- 
$8 billion later discovered old raw. But I mean, there's just a piece of this, to your point, it doesn't feel, I think, to a lot of folks real. I mean, I think it's real because I look at it and it's real money. It's capable of being transacted a number of different ways. We know that multiple governments are looking for it to make it a more meaningful part of their own economies. I think that that horse has left the barn, right? Because we saw here in the U.S. Uh, legislation being written to allow political contributions to be made in Bitcoin. So as soon as that's possible, rest assured, it's going to be accepted as a currency, right, of a type, right? So I'm not sure how we get that confluence of seriousness between the market, the media, the participants in those market, and the brokers of these various currencies to go. You know, because I think for some people, it's still kind of goofy, right? You've got the Dogecoin, you know, which is just like the cute little dog coin. And, you know, for a while, it, up and down, it was all trading, you know, infinitesimally small, you know, slices of a dollar. But it was going up and down by meaningful percentages. And people were actually playing with it. But it was like a game. It was like Pokemon cards. Right. Ollie, do you, do you get into Dogecoin? I didn't, but I have a friend who was like, I'm not sure how legit this is. So I'm going to put like $50 into it. I never actually heard the outcome of it. So Yeah, except he showed up for coffee in his new Ferrari. <laughs> <laughs> well, he did just outright buy a Tesla like in cash. So there you go. Oh nice. Yeah, I think he probably got the Dogecoin discount. <laughs> <laughs> Solid. So what do we recommend, big fella? Well, just wrap it on your your point, right? As long as we continue to refresh those dollars in a way where there's no consequence for the losses, people are going to keep putting them in. It would be like if every time you invest in a stock market and the stock market went down or like you lost your shorts or whatever the case may be and someone came in and replenished it and there was no consequence for your losses or your decisions, like, oh, why not? I'm going to keep dumping it in. Like, is it like guaranteed of no, no loss, you know? So until that happens, like, and I don't see the problem getting better. Like there's, there's gotta be some consequence associated with it. And so there's um, kind of two points I kind of want to talk on is um, one, how the Ronin hack was possible. So I, I'll just quick couple sentences on that. I want to talk about um, how the funds were actually repaid to your comment about, you know, funds being replenished. And it was just this like, and this fountain of youth of dollars and coins coming out of everywhere. So first thing was, um, how is Ronin hack possible? So one key factor for Ronin was the centralized nature of their network, which required approval of just five of nine validators to move funds. And in the world of Ronin here, like a validator is just a a computer. Like it doesn't, it doesn't have to be a person. So in their case, like it was just a computer. So a vulnerability that the hacker took advantage of was acquiring the private keys belonging to five validators. So in order to move the funds, you just had to have five of nine validators in order to like approve the transfer. So as one of Sky Mavis's major investors told Bloomberg prior to the hack, if bridges are designed badly, or um, have vulnerabilities, which is in this case, they become a huge risk to the ecosystem. So, you know, and this is a really good example, as what exists with all cybersecurity, like this is not different than anything else that we deal with in the course of normal business. It's just, it's interesting to see a move to the traditional compute world that we're all familiar with, the servers, laptops, desktops, uh, networking devices, vulnerabilities exist. You can run exploits on them to manipulate the system. The same is exact true to this network or this Bitcoin system where they say, you know, with, with blockchain technology, like it can't be hacked, meow, meow, meow. It's impervious to, to any of these things. It's like, it's a perfect mathematical equation that can't be manipulated. But I think what we're seeing is at the end of the day, like that might be true. There might be algorithms, but 
there's also programmers and human logic behind it that can subsequently be exploited, which was the case in Axie Infinity hack. That was one type of hack. That was just a vulnerability within the bridge and how public-private key pairs work for validators. But even when you like reverse it back, like there seems to be some common patterns here between they have like there's common techniques in today, whereas like there's one called the rug pull, which is basically an exit sam where you reduce the liquidity of a pool, which effectively creates like a run on the overall pool, which basically causes the whole network to basically run out of cash and there's no liquidity left for anybody else to get their money out. So it acts as a loss. The most interesting one that I see that keeps coming up over and over again when you look at the history of DeFi hacks is the idea of what's called a flash loan. This is super interesting. I'm not, I'm not going to belabor this because we could do a whole episode on this, but it, basically what a flash loan is, and you can think of it as like basically a short-term one-day uncollateralized loan for X amount, put in whatever amount you want. And so if you're operating within the network and you see an exploit within the code, you see a vulnerability, but requires additional capital or coins in order to manipulate that exploit, like maybe it's a, like a volume-based thing. Mm-hmm. In a way that you can like manipulate the prices, a flash loan basically acts as a way to pull in additional dollars, like kind of similar to what I might think of it as like a margin call on a traditional stock is saying, hey, I'm going to borrow all this money. That's not really mine. I'm going to use it to manipulate the price. I'm going to basically inflate the price and then basically extract any profit that comes out of it and then repay the loan right back. So in the case of Harvest Finance, as an example of a flash loan hack, that is exactly what ended up happening. Whereas saying they took out the flash loan, flash prices to an out of proportion position. So there's a 50 million USDT flash loan. So for now, let's call me USDT and USDC, but they're a version of stablecoin, which we could do a whole episode on that. But basically what happened is there was a $50 million flash loan that went into Harvest Finance, it manipulated the price up to 60.6 million USDT that was moved into a vault. And then you take the $11.4 million USDT, I'm talking the case of Harvest Finance, that forces the USDC price to go down. Then you subsequently remove the $6.1 million USDT from the vault, resulting in a half million dollar profit. So it's kind of similar to how I think about stocks, right? It's saying you put more money in, value goes out, you extract profit. Because you've extracted profit, price goes down and you can start to manipulate the prices a little bit. And so this is the case of Harvest Finance, the flash loan is saying they ran that loop 32 times over the course of seven minutes. So at each whack, half million dollars, and it just added up to a lot of cash. But again, it comes back to like logic exploit, right, of the programming. So there's the Axia hack, and there's kind of a recap of the first finance hack that was from two years ago for folks that remember I'm um, talking about that. But anyway, come back to your point, Jack. He's saying, what question remains now and how will the funds be repaid? So in the case of Sky Mavis, Rona Network, so they're talking about fundraising opportunities now. Um, which could include selling tokens related to Axie Infinity, which could include like the Axie Infinia or the Ronin network to the major players at a discounted price. It could include the company also selling off of some of Sky Mavis's equity to raise cash or propose a vote to the collective community that would allow it to liquidate some of its 1.6 billion community treasury to repay the losses. Wow. So again, it kind of comes back like there's no consequence to 
like making the losses painful. Like there's no reason to fear any losses because you don't have to worry. Someone's just going to turn around and pay. It's like, this is, it's like our government. <laughs> Yikes. I mean, I, I think that one of the things about the, the, the Axie hack that's interesting, right, is that network, part of what they trade in is NFTs, right? If NFTs are seen as having real equity, real value, then you make more or you increase scarcity or whatever, right? And there is a way to increase the apparent value of what you have. I'm going to walk you back to an event that happened a year ago uh, in August of 2021. I don't know if you remember, but uh, Poly got hit. The Poly Network got hit for $600 million. And what happened there that was a little bit wacky was that the person who stole it gave it all back. Here you go. Sorry about that. I just wanted to demonstrate how horribly weak this was. Right. And so it was an interesting move. And what I found particularly, I don't know, um, optimistic or revealing, depending on how you look at it. At the time when, when the person was giving it back, the brain trust was saying the reason why the person's giving it back is because the traceability associated with blockchain transactions make it really, really hard to launder this kind of money. Right. It makes it hard to derive real value. So, you know, they went down the street. They said, Psst, <laughs> you want you want some stable coin? And somebody said, uh, no, because I can tell it's stolen. And they said, okay, well, then I'll give it all back. Now, at the point when I had read that, you know, as we're leading up to the show, I was like, oh, that's that's not bad because it does make sense, right? There's a register. There's a real transaction. You can tell who owned what. And then I made the horrible mistake of reading the very, very recent FBI announcement that talked about the fact that they had arrested two folks out of Manhattan. Uh, let me get their names for the purposes of perfect accuracy. Ilya Lichtenstein and his wife, Heather Morgan. What they had done in 2016, they had stolen lots and lots and lots of Bitcoin. Uh, in fact, 119,754 Bitcoin. And fortunately, the feds did some really hard work. They figured out uh, and noticed that they were trying to launder some of this and they, they got them and they were able to recover about a little over two thirds, maybe three quarters of those. What happened though was for me, like, yeah, that's nice, right? They were able to recover $3.6 billion in Bitcoin, beats a poking out of the sharp stick. However, <laughs> that, it means that they were able to launder $957 million of this stuff in the period from the time they got it to the time they get caught. So clearly there are, to your point, logical vectors, right? That people can take either to game a highly automated system to make it more volatile in the absence of the natural friction that happens in a human-based equities market, right? By being able to, to manipulate it that quickly for seven cycles, all technology-based. And I think there's also a logic-based attack that works on the back end to figure out how to monetize these things, which by virtue of their you know, registered capability, they should be able to be seen. Yeah, I know that that's stolen, right? And it's not like a stolen Van Gogh that I take and I hang in my my room so I can look at it. Nobody ever has to see it. This is much more like, I guess, trading jewels or something that has a specific a specific fingerprint to it. But I just think it's interesting, right? Because in 2021, it was like, all right, we're kind of safe because it's hard to trade this stuff in the open market. But to your point, they've just stolen a bunch more and the path has been paved that there are ways to launder this stuff. And so does that mean, if I'm thinking about the cryptocurrencies that were stolen, does that mean I simply dilute um, the overall market value of the sum total of it by the expected eventual emergence of these coins back into the marketplace so that that basket now holds an additional $600 million worth of coins is now still worth the same, even though there's N extra coins lying around in it. So each coin is slightly less valuable. It's a dilutive effect. 
Yeah, it's certainly interesting. I don't think any of this is truly anonymous. If someone really wanted to track it back, I feel like they should be able to. Although in the course of kind of like reading about this hack in particular, so look at Axie Infinity, I'm like, all right, if they wanted to research this, figure out where the origination of this was, how would they do it? And why can't they figure it out in this case? So what's interesting in this case, the perpetrator exited through this program called Tornado Cash. Okay. Which, in other words, acts as like a proxy for coin withdrawal. So in this case, it allows for withdrawals to Arethium in an anonymous way. Like it's a service designed to basically scrub and launder and proxy identity. So it exists. <laughs> that didn't take long. Nope. What's our recommendation? What would we like to see be different? That's what people come to us for. Yeah. You know, I I guess my takeaway and I guess the message I would share is like, there could be great value in all of these things, right? They could serve a higher purpose. But for right now, I think what we're seeing is kind of the pattern that's starting to emerge is we're still pretty early on in the evolution of figuring out how this currency system works. I mean, which is fine. It's kind of like everything, right? Like I wish the losses weren't as steep Mm -hmm. as what they were, but... You know, maybe maybe the silver lining of all this is like we're getting smarter. And, you know, as we're early on, maybe this is just the beginning of an, of a cycle of, of improvement. And maybe this means because there's so many people investing in it to try to make it right. Maybe it means it's going to be viable for the long term. And I guess what I would want people to take away with is like, as you go into invest in these networks, like, you know, there's dollars associated, like real, real currency associated on this on the back end and just go into it with a healthy dose of skepticism and, you know, and it's kind of like all securities, like you read every, anytime you make an investment, you know, losses do occur and you should be ready for that. And you shouldn't invest money that you shouldn't be prepared to lose. If I could ask you a question, do you think that there's a need for consolidation in the cryptocurrencies so that there's a more limited number of them and they look less like vanity coins? Is one of the reasons why the, some of these losses aren't taken so seriously is because, you know, you've got a uh, USDT or U- USDC, or you've got Ethereum, or you've got a Bitcoin, or you've got a Dogecoin, um, like Holly's friend has, you know, and there are all these different coins. And there's it, for a while there, there was a lot of ICOs, right? Initial coin offerings. Do you think that there, before it can be taken seriously as a currency, there has to be version or versions limited of it that treat it more like uh, something that's more universally available that just has broader scope? And so there's fewer of them. And so they each have more gravity. It's mm, a good question. I'd certainly need more whiskey to ponder through it all. <laughs> but um, my complete off the cuff knee jerk is it needs more regulation. Mm. And I think it exists at a federal level and on down. Like there needs to be a whole regulation network that needs to exist that controls things like inflation, the value, like where it can and can't be used and like kind of the networks around it. And I think distributed finance is a real thing. I don't think I can see a path where it's hooked to like the traditional banking system, but maybe I could get there. But I I think the answer to the question right now off the cuff is um, it needs more, more regulation. That would be interesting, right? Because that says that as you have like Basel II, you need an international banking regulation, right? Because the mm-hmm. U.S. can't legislate cryptocurrencies because they're traded everywhere, right? So it's got to be everybody has to agree 
about those things or that one little place in you know northern Europe that decides, nope, doesn't apply to us, then they suddenly become a bastion of wild, wild west behaviors with regard to the coins because the individuals who participate there aren't bound by those same strictures. What's your thoughts on that question? I don't think it's going to be taken super seriously until there's only a couple. And my reason for that is it has to exist within the construct of the existing banking system in a way, not the governmental system, but the banking system, because people need to be able to transact purchases and sales and trades with folks who are not participating in the same channels, right, that the cryptocurrencies live in. As an example, ransomware attackers, part of their traditional payload includes instructions for how to set up a cryptocurrency account, right, because they know the companies they're dealing with aren't really participating there. And, you know, regardless of the prevalence of ransomware, I don't think it's going to hit enough people that most of the world is going to have an account, right? So they won't be able to play. And so the addressable market for people who care about cryptocurrencies remains small until it finds a way to insinuate itself in traditional banking systems so that everyone who has a wallet just gets to make a choice. Do I want the local currency or do I want the cryptocurrency? that's broader and has a different set of benefits to it. And I don't think that the banking system will be open to come as you are currencies. And so it'll be a limited number of them that have sufficient gravity and have spent enough time to the discussion we're having today here on their security and on the integrity of the system that they feel comfortable making a part of the banking. That's my thought. In that scenario, I'd imagine there would have to be an abstraction layer that would need to be built. From what I know, like doesn't exist. And I, I would imagine just as a quick example would be, it would look something like a Venmo in the sense where like you have this decoder ring that would basically take Bitcoin and translate it into dollars that could then subsequently be deposited into your bank account. Something like a, like a currency exchange, like we know like pounds to dollars or whatever the case might be. And when I look at Venmo, right? Like Venmo to me is like a really interesting example. I'm saying like you put real dollars into it, they give you a value in your account, but there's almost an abstraction to it, right? You can trade dollars between people. It never goes into the banking system. That's how I would see it working. That's a really good example. And I think you're 100% right. I like that best of all. All right. Should we wrap on that one? Damn straight. <laughs> Woo. All right. <laughs> all right. Well, this is uh, great. If you need um, honest security help or advice, Probably certainly not Bitcoin investing advice. It's negative. <laughs> not your person. But cybersecurity help, we are your folks. Uh, you can reach us at pwned at newharborsecurity.com. And uh, catch you on the next one. <laughs>